Good morning. How's everybody doing so far, aside from that? Excellent. Thank you so much for, uh, for reading the Word for us this morning. Um, I'm just going to move this guy right there. Perfect. All right. Um, so for those of you that were not here last week, my name is, is Tom Watson. Uh, my wife and I and our children uh, have wandered somewhere, but uh, we just moved back down to the Charleston area a few weeks ago, and so for me, it's good to be home. It's exciting to be here, and uh, it's an honor and a privilege. Hey, bud. It's an honor and a privilege to be worshiping uh, with y'all this morning. And last week, we were looking at, at Psalm 1, and uh, we were talking about how uh, this uh, Psalm 1 is an entranceway into the Psalms, that it, it sets the tone for the rest of the, the, the book, uh, which is a collection of songs for the congregation, the people of God, uh, to sing. And so uh, the Psalter is actually a, a, a hymn book for God's people that, the, that God's people have used for generations. Since the time of the Old Testament, God's people have been singing these songs. Uh, and for, for those of you that uh, listen to Christian radio, I, I mean, no offense, it's a wonderful thing, but... There's a, a, for me, there's a frustration there because it's, it's like variations of the same 20 songs over and over again. And, and, and half the time, you can't really tell if are they singing about Jesus or their boyfriend. I'm not sure. But, but you look at the Psalms and it's, it, it hits this wide range of emotions all over the place of great exuberant joy and deep heartache and sorrow. And so that's what we're looking at this morning uh, this is one of my favorite psalms. I've, I've gone to this psalm over and over and time and time again uh, in, in my own life, in, in my own struggles with uh, before Amy and I got married, it was struggling with loneliness and in, in our time with me trying to find work. I, I keep going back to this psalm uh, because David shows that we have the permission to come before God and ask, how long, O oh Lord? And I know that... Uh, as Presbyterians, uh, and, and I've been part of the PCA for the past 21 years, I love the PCA, but we have the nickname the Frozen Chosen for a reason. We're not exactly known for expressing emotions and, and exuberant joy in our, our worship. We're known for being more stoic and bookish, and, and those are good things to, to have those aspects and to, to be thrilled with the Word and, and going back to, to the Word itself. But um, one of the things that I, I often reference in conversations with other people is we have in the, in the Presbyterian church what I call the white boy amen, that instead of like shouting out a, a loud amen, brother, like we, we do this, so you give the nod and then take some notes. That's what I call the white boy amen. And you laugh because it's true. Um, now, I'm not talking about where, as the, the PCA, we're not getting Pentecostal here, but we are made in the image of God. We're, we're made and created with a full range of emotions. And the Psalms uh, are a beautiful example of how to engage our emotions with our worship. That they're not two separate and detached things. They, they are not separate, but they are able to be brought together in one beautiful form of worship. And, and so Psalm 13 takes the struggles of loneliness and despair and presents it as worship. And in fact, um, uh, it, it wasn't in the, uh, 
the little handout or, or in, in the bulletin this morning. But if you actually, if you're reading in your Bible this morning, you'll notice at the very top of Psalm 13, it actually says to the choir master that when David wrote this psalm, it was written specifically to the choir master for it to be sung as part of the church. And when I, when I, when I think of an entire congregation of God's people singing a psalm about how long, O oh Lord, it's not this happy, upbeat song, but it's, it reminds me of almost the, the dwarven songs that were in The Hobbit. If you saw that movie, how they sound very deep and melancholy. Those feelings and emotions are real and valid, and that's what I feel that this psalm would, would come across as, as the, the people of God are, are singing it. And David is writing that every believer, every believer, can have faithfulness in the midst of their suffering and their heartache and their sorrow. Not pretending that nothing is wrong, that everything's okay. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this expression, but when you ask someone how they're doing and they automatically reply with, well, I'm too blessed to be stressed. And it, it is such a, a Christian cliche uh, that on the surface it sounds wonderful. But I think we often try to detach our feelings and we want to neglect these, these real valid emotions that are, are struggling within us. And we have real sorrow. We have real struggle. And we can bring those together with our faith to lead us to real worship. And so David shows in this psalm that there are three ways that you can have faithfulness in the midst of suffering. Because you can cry out to God in your sorrow. You can cry out to God in supplication. And you can cry out to God in certainty. Now before we go any further, uh, let's ask for the Lord's blessing over His Word. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time that we can come together and engage uh, your word and let your spirit speak to us. God, I pray that you would pour out your spirit into this place, that you would speak through your word, that you would speak through me, that this would not just be my efforts, this would not be uh, my uh, thoughts and musings, but God, that you would use this time to let your truth for your people speak to us in our lives today. Be here with us now. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. Now, I've reached that ever-important stage of a man's life where I've begun listening to NPR on my morning commute to work. Uh, for those of you that are not familiar with, uh, with National Public Radio, uh, it's not the most thrilling uh, uh, radio experience, but it's my chance to kind of keep tabs on what's going on in the world around me. Um, but a, a couple of weeks ago on my drive to work, they were having... Uh, they were talking about uh, there, that there are prisons all over the country that are looking at bringing reforms to solitary confinement. And if you're not familiar with solitary confinement, it's a form of disciplinary action within the prison system where uh, uh, a prisoner that is not uh, within, the con or within the boundaries of how they should be behaving in prison, which is already, I'm assuming, a pretty low bar, but if they're not 
behaving the way that they should, they're pulled apart from everybody else and confined to a small room alone for 23, 24 hours a day, oftentimes for weeks at a time with no physical contact. Uh, the only light that's coming in is the, the light through a window. Uh, and there's this sensory deprivation. They're cut off from everything and, and everyone around them. And they're cut off from human interaction. The problem is that the human body is designed for these things. We are made to, to interact with one another. We are, we are designed to engage. And oftentimes, the prisoners that are in these uh, times of solitary confinement begin hallucinating and, and start uh, it, in, inducing harm on themselves. And they lose the ability to relate to others when they go back into the general population of either prison or when they're released into the outside world, they, they're not able to relate to people in general. And so there are, there are prisons that are looking at reform, uh, reforming this concept of solitary confinement because they know, even if they're not acknowledging a Creator God, they know that we are designed for interaction. We are designed, you and I are designed for intimacy, to know and be known. And when we read this psalm, we see that David is crying out in sorrow because he feels that his intimacy with God has been withheld. David is accustomed to having a, a close intimacy with God. In fact, he opens up by saying, How long, O Lord? And in fact, the, the Lord here, if you're re- again, if you're reading from your Bible, it's the Lord all caps. And if you're not familiar with this phrase in the Old Testament, that's actually a representation of the name of God Himself. It's not just Lord. It's not just a title. His name is Yahweh, the I Am. That this is His given, this is the name He has given to His covenant people to say, I am in relationship with you and you are in relationship with me. This is like if you, if you have a, a deep, close connection with, with say, a, your, your next-door neighbor is a doctor, and you're close friends with them, you, you do things together on the weekend, things like that, and any other person that comes up, oh, Dr. Smith, it's nice to see you, but you have this ability to come to this doctor and say, hey, Bill, this is what's going on. And just the, the, the fact and the concept that you are able to call this person on a first-name basis shows that there's a deeper relationship than just that surface relationship so by having the ability to come before God and use his name not just a title that's already a direct inference to an intimacy with God says how long O Lord will you forget me forever He's not truly expecting that God is going to forever forget him, but oftentimes with the people that we are close to, that we have relationship with, that we are intimate with, if you're anything like me, you tend to use hyperbole, exaggeration. Amy will often say to me, you never pick up your clothes off the floor because that is a bad habit of mine. It's not that I truly never do it, but more often than not, I do not. But she would not walk up to a complete stranger and say, you never do this. 
but because there's that intimacy there, there's that relationship there, there's almost a sense of exaggeration because there, there's, there's emotion there, there's hurt there. And so David, in his sorrow, is, is using hyperbole to say, God, I haven't heard from You in forever. Where have You been? How long will You hide Your face from me? If you read through the Psalms, being before the face of God is an expression that David uses over and over again because he wants to be in the presence of God Himself. He doesn't, he's not content to just read about God. He doesn't want to just go to a, a, a place of worship. He wants to be in the very physical presence of God. And so he repeatedly uses this phrase of being before the face of God. And here he's saying, how long will you hide your face from me? He's pouring out his heart and his emotion that this intimacy has been withheld. He says, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? He feels cut off from God. There's not that direct line of, of relationship and communication, but he's having to rely on himself and he's running on empty. And then he says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? The enemy is a phrase often used in the Psalms to describe, uh, well, quite honestly, enemies. The people are, are someone in particular that is against God's chosen people, or in this case, God's chosen person. And the enemy is often bringing violence against God's people, but here the enemy is gloating over God's people. He says, God, how long will my enemy stand over me? Be exalted over me. I feel broken and I have nothing left. David isn't writing a formal document here. This isn't a list of rules and do's and don'ts. He's listing his emotions. He's pouring out his heart. And by making this a song for the congregation of God's people to sing, he's saying that you can do that too. In Psalm 52, a Another psalm from David. He writes, cast your burden on Yahweh and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. He, he's directly telling the people of God, take your burdens, everything that you have that is weighing you down, and give it to God. You have the freedom and the access to pour out your emotions to this holy God. And I want to ask, when is the last time that you were honest about your emotions with God? Or for that matter, when is the last time you actually brought your emotions to God? More often than not, prayer time is almost looking at God like a spiritual Santa Claus. That God, I need this and this and this. In Jesus' name, amen. But when was the last time you came before God and said, God, I've been reading my Bible over and over again, and I'm, I'm not hearing a thing from you. I don't know what you are saying. Or maybe you're, you're crying out and just saying, God, I'm, I'm putting out these job ap applications all over town, everywhere I go. I can't get a job. It's been months. We're running out of money. I don't know how we're going to pay our bills. Where are you? Show up. I'm scared. 
Maybe there's the brutal honesty of saying, God, I just feel alone in my relationships. I feel dejected and rejected. Or my marriage is falling apart and I don't know what to do. Maybe you or a loved one has gotten the dreaded phone call of, of cancer or some other disease. And there's just the overwhelming fear and you don't know what to do. And here, David is saying that you have the freedom to take your heartache and your sorrow and bring that directly before the God of the universe. Because those feelings are real and valid. Those fears are real. Those questions are valid. And to not bring those before God in our prayer is a form of inauthenticity. We're not being true and honest. And here's the thing. God is big enough to take it. There is no question that you have that, there, that God is not able to handle and to deal with. Your emotions are not a sign of a lack of faith. But I will say that bringing your emotions honestly before the Lord is a sure sign of faith. Jesus Himself, the Son of God, wept at the death of Lazarus. It wasn't sinful or improper. Before He was crucified, as He was praying in the garden, He was so dreading what He knew was coming that He was sweating blood, literally sweating blood out of the dreaded anticipation of what was coming. And Scripture never says that that was sinful. It never said that it was improper. It never says that it was invalid. Engaging your emotions with your worship leads you to prayer and honest worship. Because when you honestly learn how to cry out to God with your heartache and your sorrow and every other emotion that you have, you begin to cry out to God in supplication. That's a, 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 fancy, a, a fancy word for, for prayer, but it's more than just asking for stuff. It's, it's a begging. God, I need You to show up here. It's not just asking for stuff, but it's an honest admission of God. Without You, I have nothing left to give. And David says, Consider and answer Me, O Yahweh my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. He's saying, God, please look at me and answer. I've got nothing left. And if you don't show up, that's it. I'm done. I'm over. It's through. My enemies will destroy the man that you have chosen. Because he's appealing to God and his favor. He's saying, God, You have chosen me for this purpose. You have put me here and my enemy is about to destroy me. I need you to show up. I've heard it said before that prayers are often weak not because we ask too much for stuff, but because we ask too little of God. Oftentimes we, we think of prayer as just a time to come before God and 
just kind of come with a wish list. But how often do we come before God and just say, I don't need anything else. If, anything, if everything in my life is stripped away, God, I just need you. In Philippians 4, Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In everything. In your daily needs. In your joy. And in your fears. Where is God? What am I going to do? The list of questions that I mentioned earlier. The fears of being able to pay your bills or keep or have a job. Failing relationships or crippling disease. But how often do we leave prayer as a last resort? You try to do everything on your own. Try to come up with every answer that you can think of and and every resource that you have at your disposal. And then when nothing else works, remember that you have God there in your back pocket. Well, I'm just going to send up a prayer and hope God can pull me out of this. But we're here to worship an infinite Creator God that spoke reality into existence. Out of nothing. Why would we not go to Him first in our prayers, in our needs, in our struggles, in our fears? Is it a fear that what you're asking for is not worth it? Is it a fear of coming before Him in general? Is it a fear that I'm questioning, is God, does God even care about me and my needs? There's a, uh, a pastor in New York named Tim Keller, and a few years ago he wrote on Twitter, or he tweeted, if you will, the scientific form, uh, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. And I want you to let that sink in for a minute. I know Tim Keller is prolific pastor, author, and all of that. His words are not Scripture, I understand. But I want you to let that sink in. That you and I have the ability to come before God the way that a child would come before a king in the middle of the night asking for a glass of water. That is the intimacy that David is, is feeling neglected and cut off from here. But you have the access of a beloved child to come before an infinite God. And when that starts to sink in, then you begin to learn that you can cry out in certainty. We see in verses 5 and 6, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. David makes a deliberate choice between fear or faith, and he says, I will trust. Why? Because of God's steadfast love. And this is one of my favorite, 
I know a lot of people have like their favorite, like their life verse or their favorite section of Scripture. I have a favorite word in Scripture. And in the English, it's often translated as steadfast love, loving kindness, unfailing love. The Hebrew word is, it's a guttural word, it's chesed. And there's a lot of baggage in this word. Because in the, in, in the Hebrew, when they, say that, uh, when they speak of God's chesed love, that it's His covenant faithfulness to His people. That when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, and before they were kicked out, God said, but from you, your seed will defeat the serpent, will crush his head. This is the same covenant faithfulness that God said to Abraham that your children, your descendants, will outnumber the stars in the sky. I will use you to bless all people and all nations. The same covenant faithfulness when God said to David that from your line the Messiah will come and the kingdom of Judah will be established forever. All of this covenant faithfulness and love and baggage is tied up in the one word chesed. And honestly, I cannot think of a more beautiful word than that. That's why David speaks with certainty when he says that he has trusted Not because he's trusting in his own ability to trust, but because he's trusting in the faithfulness of God. And that's the twist. The faithfulness and sorrow is not your ability to be faithful, but it's God's ability to be faithful. Your faith is not dependent upon how you feel or how your emotions are at the given moment, but your faith is dependent upon the object of your faith the one administering the faith that you have. David can rejoice in God's salvation. As he says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation because he's longing for physical salvation, but he knows that even if that doesn't come, there's the promise of the spiritual salvation. Uh, This is the certainty that we see later on in the book of Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or for those of you that grew up with the the prophetic tales of veggie tales, Rakshak and Benny. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. But as they're about to be thrown in the furnace, they say, we trust that God is going to deliver us, but even if He doesn't, our God is still in control. This is the certainty and the faith that David writes about. This is that covenant faithfulness. It's an unrelenting God that does not give up on His people. And we see that that beauty and that faithfulness in the Old Testament, but we see it intensified and personified in the person of Jesus. In John 6, it's recorded that Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. The Son of God who came down from heaven took your sins up on a cross, laid down in death, and rose up again victorious. This is the One who says, I will never let My people go. And so when David says, I will sing to Yahweh because He has dealt bountifully with Me, it's because of this faithfulness. It's the faithfulness of a God that does not let His people go. And it's that faith why we see in in the book of Acts uh, that Paul and Silas are exhibiting that same faith when they're singing in prison. It's that same faith in God's covenant faithfulness why we can see someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer being locked up in a concentration camp in the Holocaust singing psalms and hymns to a victorious God. That even in the midst of horrendous circumstances and surroundings, that their faith and hope is in a God who is greater than what is going on around them. That in His covenant faithfulness, He has dealt bountifully with His people. He has never given up on His people. That even in heartache and sorrow, He will not abandon His people. And so regardless of your feelings or emotions, or how you may feel that your faith is right now, God's promise is His faithfulness. In this life and the life to come, when everything feels like it's falling apart, that God has promised His faithfulness for you to endure. And so I want to ask, will you be honest with God about your your struggles and your fears and your emotions? Will you truly depend on God for Him to supply your every need? And will you cry out and sing in certainty of God's covenant faithfulness? Will you? Let us pray. Gracious God, we come before You this morning. And as we look at at the the sorrow and the, the heartache of David as he pours out his emotions before You, God, we thank You that You give us, Your people, the ability to do the same. That God, that You give us the access and ability to come to You and pour out our heart and our fears. God, we thank You because Your promise is not dependent on how happy we feel or how afraid we feel. Your promise is that You are faithful in the midst of that. And so God, we confess our fears, we confess our struggles, and we pray that You would point us back to Your Word, that You would point us back to the risen Savior and fill us with Your Spirit so that as we go out into the world, that we would daily be reminded of your faithfulness to your people. And we pray all of this in the victorious name of Jesus. Amen.